Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Betches Media presents Donald Trump was a, a stain on our country. I'm someone's daughter, too. That's what I'm saying. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. The Betches Sup Podcast. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Sammy Sage. I'm Caitlin Bird. And this is the Betches Sup Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Our first story today concerns whether any of the Trumps might soon be relocating to a home, perhaps in a prison somewhere. So for our opener today, I thought I've been thinking about the Trumps today. If you had to pick one Trump, Sammy and Caitlin, to be your roommate for life, let's assume they get life in prison, even though we reject such punitive measures. Who would you pick? Mary Trump. <laughs> That's clearly the best choice. I'm so mad I didn't I didn't hop on that. I was just like, are there any okay ones? Like Mary. I feel like she would be fun and you would have so much to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. If if it's one that if it's if it okay, let's say That's she fair. doesn't count because she's like obviously like not really in it. Um unless Trump like gets reelected and somehow finds a way to imprison her. Right. <laughs> oh, dark. Okay. <laughs> um, I just read an article that I I considered sending you, but I didn't want to um, increase your anxiety, to be honest. Oh, thank you. It was an opinion piece in the op-ed by Rick Wilson about how referring to Trump, Trump as the former guy is like a Voldemort strategy that isn't going to work because people who support him are still like obsessed with him. And he also clearly has a large effect on a large influence on the house of representatives. Cause yes. as you can see what happened with Liz Cheney and Kevin McCarthy. So yeah, even more incentive. Side well, if you're listening. You, but here I am telling you. About <laughs> no, all I've been thinking about, like, you know, that TikTok sound that's like, I'm busy thinking about for me, yeah. it's um, if Republicans take the house and don't approve the 2024 election. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, but Caitlin, okay, which Trump Caitlin's <laughs> Caitlin, who would you like to room with permanently? Oh my God. Um, Lara Trump, because I think that she would be just like a super petty bitch. Like we would get together and like our pettiness together would just, we would just be like the pettiest. Yeah. I could, I could, could like absorb that and like be like, let's deflect it outwards. It's us against the world. That's a really thoughtful approach, right? Why not? Why work against them when you can work with them? I mean, if we're both in prison, right. then I must have done some <laughs> real shit. So I'm here being like, let me, or I'm black. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. That's a lot I've got. Yes. <laughs> Let's make it work for me. Right, exactly. Caitlin, you could turn her sort of into your like Manchurian candidate for North Carolina or South Carolina, North Carolina Senate. Yeah, North Carolina. And um, you just secretly get her to like 
um, go against all the Trump ideologies, like you somehow brainwash her into <laughs> into doing what we want. You know, prison is a different world. We changed, so we learned about ourselves on the inside, and that yeah. that really made her a perfect candidate. Perfect candidate. <laughs> she Senate. will be the first among one of the first ex felons elected to Senate. I don't think there are any ex felons in the Senate right now. Not right now. I was going right to say now, there have been from from a historical standpoint. Yeah. That, I mean, from a historical standpoint, they're probably not people that were like mistakenly caught up in something. Probably former Confederates, to be completely exactly. Honest. I know, I know. <laughs> you know what hit me earlier this week as I was um, watching the Real Housewives of New Jersey for like the the first time. Honestly, mm-hmm. I was catching up on all the seasons. Teresa Judice, she's a felon. Does yeah. can she not vote? I don't know if they can in New Jersey. A lot of times you can, and I feel like New Jersey probably does let them, um, but like you have to pay off all your fees and stuff, which I'm sure that she has. Maybe that's why she still does this show. She's like, in order to exercise my right to vote, I have to pay off these fees. I certainly hope that she can, although I don't know if she's a big Biden fan. I can't really gauge her politics. We should have her on. We should ask her on mention it all. I don't see her as someone who like is really (laughs) about politics. Right. But she ties perfectly into our next subject, which is whether the Trumps are going to prison. So the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is investigating Donald Trump, as we know. And it looks like this investigation is really starting to heat up. So Cy Vance has convened the grand jury that is expected to decide whether to indict former President Donald Trump. I can't believe I'm saying these words or other executives at his company or the business itself, according to the Washington Post. So this is a special grand jury. It will sit for six months to hear a number of like financial technical cases. Um, This is like a series of some things they're going to hear that take a while and they need to convene a special panel. And the fact that this is happening now suggests that Cy Vance has evidence that a crime may have been committed. This has been two years in the making that they've been working on this. This comes just weeks after New York Attorney General Letitia James said her long-running civil investigation of the Trump organization had turned into a criminal probe. So former members of that office say these shifts are also usually triggered by some evidence that indicates a defendant intended to break the law. So my first thought was these two people have been have been trying to get a lot of the same information. Uh, so maybe they did recently and found something. But they began a civil investigation of the Trump org reminder in 2019. All of this was prompted by Michael Cohen's testimony. One of the main things both investigations are looking into is um, whether Trump inflated the value of assets in order to get better interest rates on loans and deflated the value of his assets to make it seem like he owed less in taxes. So he wanted to seem richer when it would be beneficial and less rich when it would be beneficial. So the DA's office is looking into that. It's also looking into whether he inappropriately or the organization inappropriately provided compensation to top executives and some consultants, which would be Ivanka. And this investigation also began with the hush money payments. So just because the grand jury will be convened, that doesn't mean it will ultimately be asked to consider returning any indictments. But one reason a prosecutor would do this is because in a grand jury, when you have that, they can subpoena documents and testimony and just other materials that you would not be able to get otherwise. So, but this actually might happen quickly. I feel like they're only doing this for six months. Nothing imminent, but I think we heard that just James's investigation was, or no, Cy Vance's term ends at the end of the year. So there may be some movement there. You know, when people ask like, what superpower could you have? <laughs> I would love to be able to be a fly on the wall for this grand jury. <laughs> like that. that would I know. Be I saw like Ellie Mistel like to be like, I volunteer as tribute. That would be sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine getting that call. Um, I wouldn't be able to be impartial. So 
Oh Here's like God. a record of all the shit I said. How are they going to find anybody impartial? Do you have to be impartial to be on a grand jury? I don't know. I don't know. Impaneling grand juries, like that's why they say that they can like indict a ham sandwich. Like it's oh. it's a whole the whole point is that you're getting people and you're literally taking them through the steps of the crime and you're getting access to evidence and other things that you would not have, which is why it was a big deal when in like the Michael Brown case, the grand jury is suggested not in, um, you know, not indicting and not going forward because it was basically like the prosecutors feed everything like you, they can go anywhere with this. They can be yeah. like Donald Trump, like kill people. Well, you can't right. people. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you <laughs> to, like, this is the most. I mean, he got people, people. killed. <laughs> I mean, right. yeah. So, like, you can go, like, really far with it. So, I, I fully expect that um, they're going to try to get... I mean, like, you can't just, like, put anyone on a grand jury. But, yeah, you can definitely get... That's what they want. They can get indictments out of this. Lovely. Lovely. Yeah, there were also, like, Trump... Like, I was also seeing Bill Barr headlines this morning. And Elise put it in the newsletter perfectly. It's like, I can barely remember these guys. It's just a big white male blob. Like, four years <laughs> of just this blob of corruption that we were constantly trying to parse and is, of course, still with us. That is what Bill Barr is. Yes. Bill blob of corruption. <laughs> that is exactly what he is. So we'll be watching that excitingly. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you are searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone on any occasion. Now it's easier to find gifts made by independent sellers for all of the people in your life, like the pickleballers, I know plenty of those, the jazz fan, the artist, the pasta lover, whatever niche interest they have, you can find an incredible gift on Etsy. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there is something for everyone. There is so much pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas specifically for my dad, but my dad loves flying. He loves airplanes. He loves aviation, and he never gets sick of a cute little gift that has a reference to that. And the inventory for that on Etsy is incredible. I hope my dad lives for 200 years because I can get him a birthday present related to aviation or planes from Etsy for every single one of them, if not hundreds and hundreds of years more. There really is that much. A gifting moment is always around the corner, but whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So our main topic for today, I'm excited to finally explore this because it's been in the headlines a lot recently and it's culminated in a few recent events. But generally what we're going to discuss today is this hysteria around quote, critical race theory and the silencing of black academics and journalists on this topic, along with just the far right, you know, grasping for a party ideology, uh, rallying around like whether teaching kids that racism exists is a bad idea. So the 1619 Project has become a stand-in for this current conversation. The 1619 Project was a huge editorial initiative published by the New York Times on the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans being brought to the United States. This, in parts of the series, sort of posit this as the United States origin story. In a sense, its stated aim is to, quote, reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. So that is opposed to, like, 776 as our founding. Obviously, like, nobody's like, let's formally change it in the history books, but it's like a provocative, it's actually not as provocative as 
some people make it out to be, but we'll discuss that. I'll note before we continue that Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the one who pitched this project and made it happen and also was the author of this like really astonishing main essay that's part of it, she won a Pulitzer and a MacArthur Genius Grant as a result of this project, but she's been doing this for 20 years and had won awards before that as well. So the issues people have with the project range from conservative Republican types saying that it focuses too much on Black victimhood and overly punishes white people for their role in slavery. (laughs) Caitlin's gone. She left. (laughs) And doesn't give white people enough credit for helping to end it. It's just funny that they're like, you overstate white people's role in slavery. It's like, I think it was 100% of the role. I'm pretty sure. But the other angle is a really particular fixation on parts of Nicole Hannah Jones's essay, which again was one part of a 40,000 word project spanning across platforms and articles, a not insignificant part at all. That's what she won the award for. And that was where she makes some of the arguments and suggestions that people seem to take issue with. So on that note, some academics, historians, and even New York Times writers and editors who I guess just... I guess they collectively just fancy themselves historians and academics, uh, disagree with her thesis that preserving slavery was a motivating feature of the Revolutionary War. People get really hung up on that part of her argument in that particular essay. More broadly, there's a just generally a massive reaction to let go of the idea that America has not always been perfect and that our founding story was not one of like extreme social justice. There's nobody wants to accept that our aim has ever been off and that our founding story is one of freeing ourselves of oppression exclusively, not involving any oppression at all. (sighs) That's the general background. But I mean, is it even, I guess so many discussion questions, but the first I want to talk about is were these ideas out there? I assume these ideas were out there for conversation before Nicole Hannah Jones convinced the New York times to put them in its paper. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, like I, I think one of the things, and I had like this temptation when I looked at the discussion points, and it wasn't, it was definitely not you. And I, I just want to say that, but like, there's a tendency to say like America, and I want to be very clear that 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 American concept does not include uh-huh. the people I'm descended from. Like that does not that did not encompass that when we talk about what America did or didn't do, agency was lying with white people. So there's no real discussion like, oh, America didn't do, the white America made decisions and everyone else, and specifically men too, because like how many women were able to actually have any kind of input other than trying to convince their husbands one way or the other on things. Right. You know, like that was the best you could hope for, I guess. Um, (laughs) So you're really talking about a a relatively small, compact group of people being defined as America, the whole country, which is where I think a huge chunk of the conflict comes from. Because these, like for a lot of people who are arguing against the 1619 Project, their notion is America was encompassed, encompasses, completely formulated by those white dudes in a room. Like, there's no other labor, there's no other purpose, there's no other people who were involved Yeah, those white dudes. And they were, when they were talking about all men created equal, they were looking at each other. They weren't thinking about the country. But as in order to make that happen, you have to shrink the country down to, like, the Declaration of Independence and 
um, the the call for for war and you know the somehow the articles of confederation just got like blipped out of existence you know there's a lot of we could talk about why libertarianism doesn't work but but off in another corner but like and then the constitution of the united states in 1789 so like there's this whole thing and you just narrow it down to just the people who are involved with that stuff and like that's why they're like oh this isn't my country or america they meant us it's like you, you the country was a lot bigger than that and the people who were involved were a lot bigger than that but who had agency to define things like this only the white dudes so, so yeah when people are like this isn't who we are it's like yeah you're right we were not most of us right. were not even part of that yeah that's so interesting that's so true but it, it's funny because like when they say this is not who we are it's like actually yeah it's exactly who right, you are exactly. it's not who the rest of us are but um <laughs> But yeah, no, I don't really understand. And we can get to the tenure piece on its own. But like, I don't really understand generally why there's so much resistance to like accepting another narrative. We're like, in addition to the narrative they want to push, because they want it to be the exclusive narrative. But like, why can't it just be like, okay, well, this was the narrative for, you know, the, the white people who came from Europe. And this was sort of like their perspective on things. But not they weren't the like you said, Caitlin, they weren't the only people involved. So they're like, is another narrative that is worthy of being discussed and entertained and like accepted as a reality it, other than just like the main one. And yeah, I don't I, I guess probably the reason they don't want that out there is because it kind of undermines their narrative in a lot of ways. I mean, what? What we've always been arguing about, uh, and I, I mentioned this during like last week's conversation about Israel-Palestine, which is that like fundamentally two things cannot coexist, and that is an ethnic state and a democracy. These two things are always going to fight each other. We were founded as an ethnic state, like explicitly for white people. And now we're trying to transition into a multiracial democracy. And there's been a lot of people for centuries who've been doing that work. Um, and a lot of people have lost their lives in the struggle against the, the ethnic state, especially indigenous people. And if you get down to it, like w- what they're arguing is that the ethnic state's history is, is the real history and that none of this, the costs of that are real and that they shouldn't be held responsible for them. And that centering this other, these other narratives, indigenous narratives, black narratives about what this country was built upon fundamentally cannot coexist with the ethno state narrative. Like we've been arguing this entire time, if all people are created equal, like what does that mean? And who gets to define people and equal? And they've had control over people and equal for two centuries and has not worked well. And the fact that we're even challenging that (laughs) is terrifying because it does mean that there will be a massive paradigm shift, which is what they're trying to prevent. They're trying to prevent next generation from changing anything that challenges white hegemony in this country. That's just the nature of it. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, I'd be terrified too, because like, if you think about it, like 90% of like, you read the stuff from like 
people who own like slavers and they're just like we can't let these people read mm-hmm. and it's because like they're so afraid of the consequences of their actions coming back it's like ooh, what do we have here the consequences of my own actions <laughs> right it's like right now yeah. when we say critical race theory we're talking about something very specific but like it's part of a long long process like back then just the idea that maybe you're a human being that is right that would be that's critical race theory like Right. It's, it's still the same. You're trying to blind people and put blinders on people. So the New York Times has received a lot of, I'll, I'll say criticism for the product, but they've always stood up for it. The thing about this project too, is that like academia is nasty and provocative. People fight, like historians fight. That's yeah. part of it. This is very typical. It's not unusual. Nicole Hannah-Jones will be the first to say that like the idea, there are tons of books about whether maybe not about entirely, but like exploring whether preserving slavery was part of the motivation for the Revolutionary War. She is not the first person to say that, but she's a black woman. So people are losing their mind over it. Also, like, I'm sure it was some people's motivation. <laughs> Why can't it be some people's motivation? Here we are again, and then week some after people's, week. Yeah. We're, yeah. yeah, like, again, like some people's motivation might have been that and some people's motivation might have not been that. Yeah. Why does it make you seem like an asshole if a right. guy 400 years ago wanted his own country so he could enslave people? Why is that not acceptable? Right. Why can't we examine the different pieces of it Caitlin's and like accept us. that they're real? <laughs> There's famously a part that, that was supposed to be about bondage and slavery <laughs> in the declaration. Yeah. Was first written because Thomas Jefferson <laughs> is not just a complete creep and the inventor of the swivel chair, but a, a <laughs> thing. Wait, what? Um, you got to go back to that. This is both true. Oh, both of those things are true. Anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> Put it on story later. Different story. But, but <laughs> it's not just that. It's, it's like he, he said I was about to write it. And then they were like, no, we're going to lose the Southern states. So you got to get rid of it. Oh, my and, God. You know, so they got they they softened the language about it. And then, of course, the most important thing is like in the Constitution, slavery wasn't addressed. And this was a huge discussion when they were having it, which is basically like we can't like there's no way we're all going to stay on board if slavery ends. Like we have Mm -hmm. to keep all of us intact and we can't go in separate ways. And like basically they were like, if you get rid of slavery like we're gonna bolt and that was like yeah. georgia south carolina north carolina virginia which at that point virginia was like responsible for like the first like like 10 yeah. of the first 15 presidents or something like it, huge state and they couldn't do it without them so they were like okay well we can't do any in maryland and where the 1619 project essay originates is in virginia right yeah yeah so like you've got all this stuff you've got this perspective and like this story is about like it's kind of like if you change the superhero origin story of like superman or like spider-man to be like instead of like a random kid getting bit by a spider he like hunted down the inventors of the spider murdered them and then injected the dna into himself you're like that's a very different story i don't know how i feel about this guy (laughs) right (laughs) yeah and then like oppressed those people for centuries yeah. Right. It's it's funny. Like you, it's like they, for example, when we're really young, we're all sort of like indoctrinated with this like Thanksgiving story, and then it's like, well, what is the story from the other side? Like, what story yeah. are they telling?
Hey there, overwhelmed foodies. Are you drowning in a sea of meal kit options, feeling like you're in a bad dating game where every contestant looks the same, with the same fish picture? Fear not, because amidst the chaos, there's one shining star worth your culinary affection. Home Chef is not just another fish in the meal kit sea. They're the gourmet catch that you've been dreaming of. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes, conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you and the entire family covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week, and they serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it is economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. So for a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com slash feverdream. That's homechef.com slash feverdream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. Homechef.com slash feverdream. You must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. So next we'll talk about some attempts to incorporate this into school curriculum. So as I said, the New York Times has received a lot of criticism for the project. It has let its own columnists. I mean, I guess that's your job as a New York Times columnist is just like fucking pretend to be an expert and say whatever you want, but it's annoying as hell. Sounds like Brent a great Stevens job. In particular, I guess, but also it's like when your job is to just react, you end up reacting all the time. I have lots of that's feelings true. about that. That's but, true. But it does like, sound, if you do, but if you're a naturally reactive person and you like that anyway, like Sammy, I think that would be a great job for you. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. I, if I had a reaction due every week, I couldn't, yeah. like, it, every not all my reactions five. would be good quality. Right, right, exactly, right. Well, yeah, that's how I feel day yeah. to day. <laughs> well, like, again, no. So to finish the thought on the New York Times criticism, it's invited some historians to write op-eds in good faith. The New York Times is a huge establishment. It lets people argue with each other sometimes. The editor of the magazine, it should be noted, has always stood really firm up for the project and has not really conceded anything. Like, they have been asked to fully retract parts of it, and they never have. I just don't get what's so bad about this project. Like, like nothing, why is nothing. this so bad? Like, that, like, that's just what I can't get. Like, I don't think it's not. It's not. It's just like, I think it's just the person that is responsible for it. They, they can't handle it. But We've also seen a number of state legislatures move to ban critical race theory, including elements of the 1619 project. So the creators of the project worked with Time Magazine and the Pulitzer Center to create a curriculum that can be used in schools. It has activity guides. It has interactive game. I don't know if there's games, but it has interactive elements. I don't know if you can Tracing your hand to be a turkey. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right, right. States across the country are moving to keep this from happening. They do not want children in school to see this information. For instance, bills in Arkansas and Mississippi call the 1619 Project a racially divisive and revisionist account, while an Iowa bill claims that it attempts to deny the fundamental principles upon which the United States was founded. So all the things that we, we just said, the bills propose that schools that devote resources or time to the project lose their funding. And Senator Tom Cotton, future President Cotton of Arkansas, sought to ban all U.S. schools from using the material. Don't speak that into existence. <laughs> you don't did. Remember that. you did? <laughs> don't, don't speak that into existence. Last time, last time. Um, Senator Tom Cotton, of course, of Arkansas, he sought to ban 
the project from all U.S. schools. And of course, before leaving office, Trump created a Trolley 1776 commission to promote patriotic education. But what neither of them seem to know is that federal education law prevents the recommendation or banning of specific curricula at the national level, I suppose, for better or for worse. But this brings us to why are they, what we've been getting at, which is why are they so threatened by the project and what about the project is so threatening. My sense, because we've been saying what's so bad about it. I think what's so bad about it is the simple idea that it demands we revisit how all of these things have contributed to inequality now and that maybe not every straight white man deserved what they have. Right. It does. It's very, I think it's personal. It, it's like, oh, no, like it, there's a natural defensiveness. But, you know, when a book gets banned, so that's how you know it's good. It's just. <laughs> That's what I've always thought. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's it's all part and parcel of white supremacy. Not only the fact that like enslaved people were not permitted to read or organize or keep languages or anything that allowed them to have communication or record our history. Um, and that that there's and then of course, like there's the the other thing, which is that there's a very extremely entrenched myth inside of our public schooling system that's been there for over 150 years as the United Daughters of the Confederacy, an advocacy group that's aligned with what's called the lost cause, put the Confederate revisionism into the country's textbooks. Um, They're responsible for all of the, the public monuments to the Confederacy, they were resp- like they were a massive yeah. lobbying and organizing group, which is why you know to some degree when I say like you know women not having a voice, I mean some white women were very politically aggressive mm-hmm. on the side of white supremacy, and they Lift. did a lot Lift. of heavy lifting, and sometimes literally by creating like that entire row of statues in Richmond. It's literally all Confederate leaders, and they're like giants. That was all like UDC funding, UDC organized, like that was them using their political muscle to entrench this lie that the Confederacy did not leave, did not try to tear the country apart for slavery and that they weren't like owning humans wasn't the main concern of their existence as a country. And then on our existence in the country. And you think about the fact that people who wanted to own other people would rather destroy the country than let it live. And then say something as ridiculous as, oh, well, it clearly that wasn't a major concern when we founded the country. Like, are you like, wh- where, where, how do you get that? Like, how do you look at the civil war and be like, yeah, it was definitely not a concern of our founders. They just, um, <laughs> Not, not even the thing that we're worried about the whole owning people right. thing they just uh everything was fine and they didn't really even notice it um and then it exploded into one of the worst wars that humanity had ever seen so yeah, less than a hundred years after the war people are claiming had nothing to do with people wanting to keep slaves and then the next suddenly we're destroying ourselves to yeah. keep slaves. and this is in text you guys all of our textbooks right now start from the lost cause myth. They do not, almost nowhere, does a proper valuation that lets enslaved people or their descendants have a voice 
in what the country looked like and what we built it as Mm -hmm. like none there's no there's almost no text that does that this is the first one that tries to do it and that's why it's such a threat because all these people have all been chugging lies their entire lives and now having to being confronted with the truth it like it just it breaks your spirit you know which is where a lot of defensiveness comes from well i also think that like if this were to become the dominant narrative what they're afraid of is that the natural question that arises is like do we owe anything what do we do about it how do we correct it and then the the r word comes up Mm -hmm. reparations and it be and like this kind of makes a very strong case for why reparations if you ever believe reparations make sense they make sense in in the context of this narrative. And I think that to be honest, people are probably afraid that they, that like it could go there and that they will be forced to like physically hand over their money. People that can't they even earned. handle like, like diversity initiatives that threatens them. So yeah, yeah, the idea of us recognizing that decades of like, of like, w- like when you look out and you see the inequality, there are answers for it. The answers yeah. are, all there. So this has culminated recently. A lot of the types of people that are very threatened by this apparently on are on UNC's board of trustees. So this culminated recently in the news that the University of North Carolina's journalism school would not immediately offer Nicole Hannah-Jones the tenure typically awarded with the role they're giving her. Conservatives on UNC's board of trustees basically stepped in to withhold tenure from Hannah-Jones' appointment as the next night chair. So all the previous night chairs at the university had been hired with tenure. This is typically a professor who's brought in from the news business rather than expected to be like an academic or a historian. All of the previous night chairs had that background. Uh, They were all white. They were all offered tenure before. Instead, Nicole Hannah-Jones is being offered a five-year term without tenure. So this prompted a really strong response from tons of academics, professors, uh, even the Chronicle of Higher Education, which had previously... Again, there is a lot of engagement with some of the themes that 1619 product brings up, none of which Hannah Jones has like shied away from. But even these outlets and publications and groups have said, no, 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 this is not how it works. You don't you don't silence people. So as of this morning, uh, UNC Chapel Hill's provost's office asked the school's committee and appointments promotions. Sorry. So basically, as of this morning, the people responsible for this have asked them to reconsider and take another vote on this. They had never taken their final vote. This was sort of still up in the air, but it looks like there might be a little bit more consideration given here. But what do you think, Caitlin, this this rejection of tenure represents is an, is an extension of everything we've been talking about? I mean, it, it's racism. It, it's probably also sexism. But yeah, mostly mostly racism. Yeah, no, it feels... Feels like a pretty clear answer. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like as obvious as comparing like salaries. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like that clear of a clear, you know, it's clear. Right. I mean, this is like the right, you're so right. This is like the typical easy case study of like two people in an entry-level job, yeah. like one woman of color and one white guy. But this is like on a much higher level, and it's still the most basic discrimination. And as we said, people are standing up for, and it looks like they could reconsider, but I mean, tenure is important for a lot of reasons specifically that relate to, I feel like what has made Nicole Hannah Jones so 
important is that people that are tenured have a little bit more liberty to say what they want to say without uh, repercussions, without immediately being fired. They have a lot of, um, you know, they have a ton of privilege and she is being explicitly denied that privilege by pointing out all of our other privileges. <laughs> Would yeah, you look at that? Be, as a journalist, um, just to be clear, used to be uh, ag- uh, education segregation. So like she, she wrote of what brought her actually to the kind of national, like bigger prominence before the 1619 project, which I think she was able to pitch because of this series was, you know, that she had written a series about how she was trying to find a school for her daughter in New York. And like the, the, the insane school segregation and the difficulty of navigating and finding a, an environment that would nurture her child. And like that, so like what we were getting right back to the point, which is that like, this is what American education has been like. This is what American resources are like. They are segregated. She's being treated differently because she's black, because she has talked about issues that black people have centered in the history of this country. I mean, Du Bois was doing this work. Like, there's there's a long trail of black scholarship about the conditions that we uh, have lived under as Americans going before the founding all the way and yet and yet we we still are watching people you know try not instead of grappling with it and trying to figure out where we go from here just continue wanting to embrace denial so you know if if that's what they want to do, you know, that's that's on them. But it's clearly out in the open. Do you think that these attempts to ban it in schools like pose a really long term threat? I mean, it's hard to imagine because the worst case scenario is things stay at they are as they are uh, in terms of how we learn about this, which is pretty bad. But when you get used to things and they're normal, we don't really see them as that bad. I wonder if it'll almost become like an abstinence only education verse. You know, yeah, well, I heard her, I heard her say on a podcast that, you know, Donald Trump still keeps saying 1619. And her whole point was to make people know that date and to consider yeah. that as an important date in origins. And she's like, people keep saying it. So that was my other thought. I was like, it actually might backfire because the more controversy around it, actually, I think will make more people at least people who are similar to me look at it and be like, oh, actually. And when you, it makes so much sense that it's like almost irrefutable as a like legitimate view. So it's just a question of like, yeah. Do you know, do you, do you know about it? Yeah. I think it's, I mean, long-term, I think it is absolutely a threat. Um, I looked at, you know, everyone would seen recently the the information that white support for Black Lives Matter has dropped to below where it was in January of 2020 before all the protests and everything. Yeah. And like that is the education is just like the first step to, again, dismantling problems like you need to understand the nature of our problem in order to think of it as a problem and to want to address it and to start coming up with solutions. And um, as I said, we've been in a war from before our founding about what all people created equal really means. And the people who have control over those definitions 
are very sure that in an age of resource scarcity or what they perceive to be resource scarcity or what they perceive to be American hegemony or whatever they consider power and value and resources that they deserve, that other people do not. There needs to be a strict hierarchy that keeps them at the top. And when we're talking about people and equal, those definitions only apply to the right kinds of people. And they want their children to believe the same thing. And it has been what has been believed and has been very carefully and deeply entrenched in this country. And even just beginning to, to unearth it is a seismic shift in how we talk about equality and what it means to be a multiracial democracy. And they do not want it. They do not want equality. So right. to me, yeah, that's a big long-term threat. Um, and in the short term, I hope people really do look at this stuff. But, you know, I mean, there's not there's not a lot of optimism for me, you know, unfortunately. Well, yeah. I, think, I think part of the, like, let's say, like, less support for Black Lives Matter, I almost feel like there's among white people, there is sort of this like immediate guard that goes up, like that people get defensive about it. But I also think that like once a lot of people can, some people can, I believe that people can get past that. And once they sort of like soften that defense, I really think that like support can start to grow or at least like I would hope. <laughs> I think the problem is that you have a political party who has no other organizing principle other than the counter reaction to progressive right. things happening. They have nothing right. else. So they they have they have to keep they have to keep people from 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 learning why it's not a threat to them. Like their future of their party rests on that, which feels like a perfect time for our ending tagline. <laughs> until the yeah. end of demo- <laughs> until the end of democracy. I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Sammy Sage. I'm Caitlin Bird. And this is the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.